do a summary of what I've been talking about concerning the cross of Christ and how He makes satisfaction for us. At the heart of the Christian faith is what Christ has done for us to redeem us out of the slave market of sin. At the heart of redemption, at the heart of Christ's life, it is His death on the cross. We love to sing about it. And I think it's, I think for us who have been bought by such great of a price, we need to understand the very depths of Christ's love for us in light of what He has done. <clears throat> and a lot of, and also, um, dismantle a lot of ideas that we have concerning the cross. As it was said, the cross is the mystery of Christ's redemptive work. We are in infinite debt to God. How are we ever to be pulled out of such debt? The issue is this. There's a lot of people and there's a lot of sins. How then are a multitude, a multitude of sins from the very beginning of the first man to even now, even the babies that are being born um, currently as we speak, how can their sins be forgiven? How can something over 2,000 years ago touch us now? And that is the mystery of the cross, is it not? How can something over 2,000 years ago even prior to Christ's saving work, because we believe that old people in the, or rather, saints in the Old Testament were saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. So how can Christ's redemptive work touch me here and now, or whenever when Christ saved us? We will consider a few things concerning the cross of Christ, how we are to think of the cross of Christ, and what makes Christ's cross satisfactory. In other words, when the Father looks at His Son on the cross, how is that demonstration a pleasing aroma to Him, as St. Paul tells us? Because if your Son was dying, would you see your Son on the electric chair and would you view it as a pleasing aroma? Would you view that demonstration of whatever your son's dying for, in the case of Christ dying for the greatest thing, the greatest act of good, which is turning enemies to friends, restoring friendship, would we look at that as a pleasing aroma? We know because of Adam's sin, we are in an infinite debt to God. And what we needed most for our sins to be forgiven was one of infinite value. Again, when Adam sinned, you might ask, well, how can Adam's sin cause us, cause human beings to pay a punishment in hell for all eternity? How is, why do people spend an eternity in hell? Why not 10 years? Why not 20 years? Why not 100 years? And the reason is because of not particularly the sin itself, but whom Adam sinned against. Adam sinned against an infinite being who is God. Therefore, his punishment must be infinite. The punishment must fit the crime. And in this case, the punishment must fit the one whom you are sinning against. 
the one you are sinning against. We always notice too, if someone was to, in first degree murder, kill someone else, uh, you took that life, therefore you must give your life. Well, in the case of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, since God was of infinite worth, or since he's of infinite worth, he deserves, or rather we deserve, an infinite punishment. What runs through all of Christ's saving work, saints, is his infinite value. What runs through all of Christ's saving work for us. The reason why you can be assured today that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is because the one whom you are united to, the one whom you have faith in, is of infinite worth. In other words, there is no expiration date to the blood of Christ and his sufficiency for us. There, there is no, you, there is no, uh, you can't exhaust. I mean, if Christ was to, hypothetically, die for every single person who's ever lived, his blood would never, and the, the efficacy of his blood would never run out. That's how much value he has of Christ's obedience, saints. Our, think of Christ's obedience. Our per, Lord's perfect obedience unto God is of infinite value because the one who's offering such obedience is not only one who is truly man, but also one who is truly God. You could say the same thing about Christ's death. How can one man's death pay for the sins of, let's just say, you, me, and the person next to you? It doesn't make any sense. Well, it's because the one whom died is the eternal Son of God. As Pope Clement says, the merits of Christ are infinite. That a single drop of His blood, because of the personal union with the Word, would have sufficed for the redemption of the human race. One drop of Christ's blood would have been sufficient to redeem the whole human race. John Owen the great Reformed Puritan even say that if there was a multitude of worlds, Christ's blood, a single drop of Christ's blood was, was sufficient enough to die and atone for and, 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 for, and to wipe away the sins of every single person in those infinite amount of worlds. That is how we must think of the, the death of Christ with relation to its sufficiency. How sufficient is it? Very practical for us saints. Very, very practical for us when we consider even how we may think that our works sort of contribute to the work of Christ. Well, what can we add to something that is infinite? We, you can't add to something that's infinite because something that's infinite is without bounds, without measure. So we can't add to the saving work of Jesus Christ. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here we see that the eternal Son of God, not an angel, not one who is a man who was divinized, but rather it is the second person of the Trinity. That one who was, as Pastor Antonio said earlier, was eternally begotten of the Father, who was of same Nature with the Father, this one became truly human without ever being truly God. So when we consider the uh, satisfaction of Christ, when we consider the death of our son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we must remember that the very base of Christ's person, if we were, if we were walking and we saw Jesus Christ, you would say, who's that person? 
we would say that is the eternal Son of God. The base of His person, all of the actions that are performed by Jesus Christ are the actions of God. Again, all of the actions that are performed by Jesus Christ are the actions of God, even if they are actions attributed to His humanity. That would be death. And this is what we read in Scripture. How can St. Peter say in Acts 20, 28, Be on guard for yourselves for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. Notice there's no mention, or rather Peter should have said, to shepherd the church of God whom in Jesus Christ, via His human nature, He purchased us with His own blood. He doesn't say that though. He says that God purchased us with His blood. Well, God doesn't bleed. But in Jesus Christ, God bleeds. In Jesus Christ, God has died for us. Or as provocatively, uh, we don't like to say a lot of what the church fathers like to say, but I'll just say this. The church fathers just say that on the cross, one of the members of the Trinity died for us. Well, how does he die? He dies according to in a mode in which he can die. That is, he dies in his humanity. Nevertheless, though, nevertheless, though, we can truly say it is God who died for us. As Richard Muller says, since the person of the, the, the person of the divine is the divine word, the infinite second person of the Trinity, the work performed by that person, even though accomplished through the instrumentality of his human nature, must be infinite. In other words, the actions performed by Christ, even if they are actions that he does as man, carry an infinite worth and dignity to them. This is why Jesus Christ, with the human touch, can heal someone. Because through His human touch, His divine power shows forth. His divine power shows forth. <clears throat> As um, Sudanisius once said, Jesus Christ humanly does things divinely. And divinely does things humanly. There is, and I haven't talked about this much, maybe later, there is a, a unique, harmonious, perfect synergy within Christ. That everything He does, He does as the God-man. So when Christ is dying on the cross, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the very same moment, He's upholding the Word by His power. He doesn't stop being God and that, you know, so he can do human things. <clears throat> so, Christ's humanity then, saints, is the very humanity of God. And this is how Jesus Christ can merit for a multitude of people. Christ, as an isolated individual, can merit, can earn for us redemption. Because Christ's body and soul, his human body and soul, is the human body and soul of God. Because Christ's human body and soul is the human body and soul of God. Now you might say, how is that possible? Saints, this is the mystery of the Incarnation. This is the mystery of the person of Christ. Or we can say, as one theologian said, our Savior's human actions are united to a divine person. In a personal union so close that we can truly say that God, he could say, that God drew near to humanity so close that whatever happens to him via his humanity, he takes credit for. 
This is why we can't say that Jesus, even as man, could sin. Because it's the person of the Word, it is the person of the eternal Son of God, who takes ownership of all the actions that Christ does, even in His humanity. So if Christ could sin in His humanity, then we can also say that Christ can die, or rather that God sinned. Just as we can say Christ died via His humanity, we can also say that it is God, the eternal Son, who died. <clears throat> he says a personal union so close that we can truly say it is God, the Son, who acts, who suffers, merits, and makes satisfaction in the human nature that He has taken on to save us. Or as one theologian said, His human actions possess a special efficacy by which He could produce effects beyond the power of ordinary men. How can, again, how can His humanity produce an effect that is beyond what normal humans could do? That is, heal people. We do not have the power to heal people because His humanity is the humanity of God. This is why Jesus Christ's blood is worth saving everyone in this room and not just Himself. Because the blood of that man is the blood of God. Scripture testifies to this, John 4, 14, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. <coughs> Let's consider now the other aspects of Christ's satisfaction that is pleasing to the Father. So, at first, we must think of Christ's satisfaction and what makes it most pleasing to the Father is what's being presented to the Father. That the type of sacrifice that's being presented to the Father is not just an angel. It's not just a human that's been supernaturally elevated. But the one who's offering himself upon Calvary's cross is the eternal Son of God. And that is why it's of infinite worth and value. But what, the, what are other aspects that are pleasing to the Father? I'm going to argue that the type of sacrifice that the Father finds most pleasing is a sacrifice that outwardly shows an internal reality. An internal reality. <clears throat> Again, uh, St. Paul tells us, as it was noted earlier in Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, and offering a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So St. Paul tells us that Christ's cross was a fragrant aroma to the Father. But this runs counter to how we think of our most beloved treasure in the world going into non-existence. If my son Owen was on the electric chair, I would not see that as a pleasing aroma. Nor would I see if my son Malachi was on the electric chair as a pleasing aroma. So how does the father then, what makes the son sacrifice a pleasing aroma? as we can say that on the cross there never was a time when the Father was most pleased with His Son. Was most pleased with His Son. So what, what does He find most pleasing in, that, in the Son's uh, uh, sacrifice on Calvary? Many will argue that it's the blood. It's the pain. It's the wrath that's being poured out upon the Son that the Father finds most pleasing. That the father was on the verge of hitting someone. He built up all this wrath and anger ever since the fall of Adam. And right when he was about to hit us, Jesus Christ moves us out the way. 
And He takes the blows for us. And thereby, the reason why we are uh, uh, no longer have to suffer uh, the punishment of hell is because Jesus Christ took our hell on the cross. <clears throat> Saints, that is not how we are to think of Christ's satisfaction. Uh, that's not how we are to think of Christ's satisfaction. Again, the way in which God handles the evil and the problems of this world is not by retribution, but by love. That is how evil and the problem of evil is stopped. And that is how God stopped evil. It's not by retribution, but by love. But by love. And Jesus Christ is the love of the Father. It is not the blood and the pain that Christ underwent that the Father finds most pleasing. As if God must be satisfied by way of blood. Is that what the Father needs in order for us to be saved? He needs blood. That's not a faithful representation of Christ's sacrifice. And saints, that is a not a repre- faithful representation of the gospel message. Herman Bobbink, a Reformed Dutch theologian, says, in the entirety of Christ's person and work, this Christ is a revelation of God's love. Christ is a revelation of God's love. This means, on one hand, it is a mistake to regard Christ's work solely as a revelation of God's punitive justice. Many think that, well, the reason why the Son came was because the Father needed His justice to be satisfied, which is true. However, we must not make that the primary reason. Because Bobbing was going to say, this will turn God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ into a pagan deity whose wrath must be averted by sacrifice. That's how many of you, I'm sorry, saints, that's how many of the world thinks, right? That I am so angry that I must take out my anger by physical force. Blood must be shed. But that's not how we would think of the cross. John Owen and Thomas Aquinas say, John Owen says, God was more, was more pleased with the obedience, offering, and sacrifice of His Son than displeased with the sins and rebellions of all the elect. He was more pleased, not by the death, not by the blood, more pleased with the obedience, with the offering, with the sacrifice of His Son. Thomas Aquinas says the same thing. He properly atones for an offense who offers something which the offended one loves equally or even more than he detested the offense. But by suffering out of love and obedience, Christ gave more to God than what was required to compensate for the offense of the whole human race. What these men are saying, saints, is... The reason why the Father freely accepts the Son's sacrifice is not primarily in the physical sufferings of Christ. It is not in the blood that is shed per se, but it is in the love and the obedience that Christ displays on the cross. This is why Christ's cross is a worshipful act from Him to the Father. He is worshipping worshiping His God on the cross. Christ is teaching us Not only what it means to be a follower of Christ, but also to be a worshiper of God. God gives Christ out of, uh, loves Christ's act of obedience more than he detests sin. This is what we see in Scripture. That God, out of everything, out of anything in the world, he loves obedience. God loves obedience. 
First Samuel fifteen twenty two. Samuel said, "Does the Lord have such much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to pay attention is better than the fat of rams." The fat of rams is the thing that would be offered to God. But God is saying, but if you offer your obedience, I will take that more than the fat of rams. Think of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22. What made that? What made Abraham's obedience most most, uh, um, pleasing to the Father? Because it was out of love. It is out of love. Think of Adam's obedience in the garden. What brought Adam obedience, or rather disobedience? What brought his disobedience? How did he bring about sin and death? Saints, it was him not loving God. And by not loving God, an internal reality, it demonstrates an external response, which is what? Disobedience. So what Christ does on the cross, saints, for us is He offers a greater obedience than Adam in the garden, than Abraham on Mount Moriah. But Christ's obedience was so great that His perfect love for God and giving Himself over to death outweighed the evil of all humanity. Again, how does, how does God fight evil? Not with evil, but with love. And the love that's being demonstrated on the cross far outweighs the hundreds of years that people have been spitting in the face of God. <clears throat> it far outweighs all of the evil of mankind. And not just merely past, present, but also it extends into the future. This is what the Word of God says in Romans 5.19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. In other words, Christ's obedience of love puts to death Adam's disobedience of pride. How do you counter disobedience? Obedience. How do you counter evil with something powerful, rather more powerful, love? That is how you win. And that is how God has won and continues to win. Because of the love that Christ shows forth in obedience, the Father accepts His Son's sacrifice on the cross. This is best captured in the words of Christ in John 7, 10, 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it back up, or take it back. What's the highest form of love that we can show someone, saints? It's indeed death. But with regard to Christ, what pleases the Father most is the manner in which Christ gives His life. It's not just I will die, but also it's the manner in which I will die. Jesus does not kick and scream His way to the cross. But rather, our Lord freely accepts the cross. As the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12.2, looking at Je- only at Jesus, the original and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How do we sit down at the right hand of the throne of God? By endurance, the way in which Christ endured. In light of these things, we must say that the sacrifice of Christ is first and foremost a demonstration of Christ's great love for His Father. That that you are so worthy of this, I will give you myself. Just as we can say, um, 
In John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We can also say that the Son so loved the Father that He gave Himself over to experience pain and suffering. And likewise, the Father so loved the demonstration of love by His Son dying on the cross. The very root of your salvation, saints, is rooted in the triune God's love for themselves that shows itself out in the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, whereby the Holy Spirit is given to the Son without measure, thereby inspiring the Son, filling his, the Son's soul with such love, thereby He can despise the shame or despise all those who want to kill Him, who have done Him wrong. He's able to endure the cross. But in addition to Christ's charity, saints, we also see that Christ's sorrow was also pleasing to the Father. Christ's sorrow was also pleasing to the Father. What is the one thing that you desire most if you are, if someone has done you wrong? You don't desire money or cars or houses. You might take those things, but you don't desire those things. More so, what you desire from someone who's offended you most is for them to be truly repentant of what they have done to be truly sorrowful for what they have done and then outwardly show that they are sorrowful. Well, we're in a dilemma here because Jesus Christ personally never sinned. So how can Jesus Christ say He's sorry for something that He never did? And one of the ways you get around that is Jesus Christ, by taking on our humanity, there is a relation that Christ has with us. That He is, as theologians have said, our representative, our federal head. That He's united Himself to us in such a way that what He does is what we do. So Jesus Christ then, because of what we have done, He takes on our status of guilty. And He goes to the cross and He pays the penalty for someone who is guilty. That is death on the cross. Psalm 51, 16-17, a verse we all know well. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I will give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. We know that Christ offers an outward demonstration of love. He offers Himself. You can't get any better than the outward demonstration of love of Christ. <sighs> But how is Christ also offering an inward sacrifice? We, we, we hear this time and time and read it time and time again in the Old Testament. That is, I don't, I don't want to accept your sacrifices even if you present to me the fat, the fat of rams. If you present to me even the birds and, and the rams and the goats and all that who are of pure spots, uh, are spotless, I, I don't want those if your inward heart posture is not right. There must be a connect between the, between the outward and the inward. They must connect with one another. So how does Christ then, how does Christ, how does He offer, how does He offer an eternal, an eternal contrition and sacrifice to the Father? Well, again, the sacrifices that God finds delight in is one of proper heart posture. One that visibly offers to God what's rightly due to Him. And what we see displayed on Christ's cross, saints, 
is that he doesn't only go to the cross because of the great love that he has for his father, but also he goes to the cross because of the great hatred of sin that he has. Because of his knowledge of sin, and how does he how is he enlightened by his knowledge of sin? Not because he's personally a sinner, but by contrast, the great love of God and who he is. And he knows what sinners are doing when they sin. It's an offense to God. And in light of that knowledge of who God, you, you know this well, the more knowledge you have of God, the more sensitive you will be towards sin. The more knowledge that you have of God's holiness and what He has, and what he has said concerning Himself and what sin is, the better and the more, again, sensitive you will be towards sin. This is why, saints, you know, when you go a long time without, you know, sinning, and in the moment you sin, you feel like the most ugliest person in the world. Well, think of a, think of think of Christ then, who had the the full knowledge of God, and thereby he understands sin at his very ugliest. Christ not only goes to the cross because of the great love for his Father, but also because of the great hatred of sin. Saint Paul says that he loved me and gave himself up for me. Christ knew St. Paul's sin better than St. Paul knew his own sin. Christ knows our sin better than we know our sin. Not because he's sin again, but because he knows his God. And he knows the great offense that sin is to God. This is why, saints, we look at those who are homosexuals. We look at them and although they need the gospel, we also can say, man, look at what wicked sin they are doing. And we look at their wicked sin because of and in light of what we know about God and being created in the image of God. And we could say that Christ then on the cross is so cut to the heart, even before the cross, He's so cut to the heart by the sins of His people that He grieves over our sins. He grieved over Lazarus, not because his friend was dead primarily, but because of what sin has done to his friend. He cries over Jerusalem, because they do not believe the only Savior of the world. This is not because Christ wants to save them and they're denying Him, but because this is a natural thing for us to do. When we drive... Let me give you an example. When I was driving through San Diego and I was on that street where there was a bunch of rainbow flags and homosexuality everywhere, it grieved my heart. We should grieve when we see those who are in outward sin. We should grieve over their souls. That is a proper, that's a proper response. And Christ here is showing a proper response, especially when He's crying over Jerusalem. Again, not that He's trying to save everyone and they can't be saved because they don't want to believe, but because they're rejecting the one true Messiah, the one who's able to take away their sins He offers himself up to the Father to make the wrongs, or rather to make right the wrongs that we have committed. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 5-7, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Jesus Christ offers up to the Father. And notice, the writer of Hebrews says that he doesn't offer himself up and There's no emotion. He's just a stoic. But rather, 
Christ really went through it in order for us to be forgiven. That He offers up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Loud cries and tears because of our sins. Because of what we have done. But even in light of that, He's still the Savior of the world. What does He tell, what does he tell the Father on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus Christ then offers a great sacrifice of the Father. And what I want you to note, saints, when we think about the cross, it's not merely about punishment for punishment's sake. That that is not what the Father finds most pleasing. But it is this perfect life that was lived. It is the eternal Son that came down. But also, it's the love that's being demonstrated. It's the sorrow that Christ has over sins that the Father finds most pleasing. And as a result, He he resurrects His Son and ascends Him unto glory. The great result for us then, saints, because of Christ's sacrifice, is seen in John 3.17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through Him. Paul says in Ephesians 2.3.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What's the great result, saints? How can, again, something that happened over 2,000 years ago touch us now? St. Paul says, because of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is of such infinite worth and value that if if the Lord tarries and does not come back at this day and hour, once we die, whenever God decides to take us home, and 500 years have passed, and Christ has still not come back, the blood of Jesus Christ is still efficacious enough. We can still plead for the blood of Christ. We can still call upon the blood of Christ to cover up our sins. That's how efficacious the blood of Christ is. Because wrapped in the blood of Christ is infinite value. It's, It's supreme love. It's perfect contrition of heart. All of those things that He gives to the Father and the Father gives to us. This is why saints, when we think of the cross of Christ, we don't think of the cross of Christ as restoring friendship. It is taking once those who were once friends in Adam, who then became enemies, who now are friends again. We have been brought near to God by the blood of of our incarnate Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.